0: People keep saying this year has been unprecedented. 2020 has broken records, surprising us with challenge after challenge. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances. At second, it's important to hear the story of the great things God is doing, not only in the church as a whole, but also in each one of us individually. We want to hear your story. So we're inviting you to go to second.org mystory and tell us about what God has done and is doing in your life. All right. We want to hear from you what God's been doing in your life during this year. So go to second.org. You can either write out your story briefly or do a quick video. Hey, I invite you to kneel for a word of prayer. If you're watching at home in your apartment, kneel wherever you are, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that as we kneel before you right here in the worship center and throughout this city and throughout this nation, God, we thank you that we can come into this place and worship you. God, we thank you for a new song and for the encouraging word they've given us today already. And Lord, uh, we ask right now, that you would be with our nation during this time of transition. God, we pray that you would bring peace. We pray that you would bring healing. And God, we pray that we as a country will continue to fight for the freedoms that you have given to us. God, we pray for President-elect Biden, that you would give him wisdom and courage as he seeks to lead our country in the future. God, we thank you that our country is really with you. Our citizenship is in heaven. You are our president. You are our Lord. And God, we've gathered here today to hear a word from you. God, speak to us. Change us is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of times I get questions about actually what I do about preaching sermons. And one of the most frequently asked questions I get is this. How long does it take you to prepare a message? And my response is 57 years. And what I mean by that is it's however old I am. Why do I say that? Am I being sarcastic? Yes, but I'm also being serious. Because when you give a message, a sermon, a speech, you're leading something, you bring all of who you are The good, the bad, and the ugly, your past, your knowledge you have, you don't have. You're bringing all of that to the communication event. Another question I get is where do you get your ideas for your messages? Where do they come from? Well, most of my ideas obviously come from this book, okay? They come from the Bible. And many times we're going through a different book of the Bible. So the messages come through Scripture Other times messages come through uh, people in our congregation as I'm listening to different needs and problems that people have. Uh, Sometimes they come to me in in random places. Like uh, I was at dinner the other night um, with my wife and we were at some place eating hamburgers. But there was this boutique, uh, really high-end boutique in the distance. And as I was eating a hamburger, I saw this neon sign in this upscale boutique. And the neon sign said, I want it all. And I thought there, that's an idea for a sermon. Haven't developed it yet, but that's just kind of where some of my ideas come from. So this, that'd be good though, wouldn't it, right? I want it all. So the idea for this sermon actually came from an atheist, an evolutionary biologist by the name of Brett Weinstein. And I was watching his podcast. I mean, we were talking about it, It was a Joe Rogan in length podcast, if you know what I'm talking about. But at the end of the podcast... Dr. Weinstein started talking about the word resurrection. We need to resurrect this and resurrect that. I just thought, isn't it interesting uh, that an atheist is talking about resurrection and how we need to resurrect certain things in our society. And I said, you know, that is a really good idea for a message. So sometimes you need to be shaken up and waken up by an atheist. uh, and, And preachers are a little slow to realize, huh, the resurrection, that's kind of an important part of the Christian message. So what I want to talk about today is, are, is really three things, and, and, and I'm using the word resurrection really as a metaphor and analogy. So in the crudest form, the, the term resurrection or to resurrect something means to bring something back to life. Something was dead and now it needs to be resurrected and brought back to life. So. As we look at our nation, as we look at the church, as you look at your individual life, what needs to be resurrected? There are three things I think we need to resurrect. Ready? First thing we need to resurrect is personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. The other two will flow out of personal responsibility. You say, well, what is that? What does personal responsibility look like? What do you mean by that? And why is it so important? We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, we have to realize and embrace what is the problem. What's the problem that we're facing? What's dead that needs to be brought back to life in our life individually and our lives corporately? Turn to John Chapter 10, verse 10. We looked at John 10, 10 last week. We're going to look at John 10, 10 again. John 10, 10 again. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, it is my favorite gospel. If I'm allowed to have a gospel favorite, it's my favorite one. In John 10, 10, Jesus is talking and he is laying down and dropping some truth bombs. Here's what he said. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy But I have come that they, that's us, may have life and have it to the full. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about the thief. And many times the thief is not someone out there, but it's someone in here. So we looked at what are we doing in our life right now that's bringing destruction and could be destroying us and actually killing us. How do we identify those things, and what do we do about it? So that was last week. What is the thief doing? What is it robbing us of? Well, one of the reasons I think we're getting robbed by the thief, so to speak, is that we have not embraced these three realities. These are three core realities about life that never change. They never change. They never change. And a failure to embrace these realities leads to a lot of pain, heartache, and confusion. You're wondering, what are the realities? Here's the first reality. First reality is this. Life is difficult. Life is difficult. Life on this planet, no matter who you are or who you are not, no matter how much you have or how much you don't have, life is difficult. Life is challenging. Life is always about facing one challenge, one difficulty after the next. That's simply how it is. Second reality that we have to embrace, but sometimes we don't, is that life is unfair. A fare is something you pay to get on the bus. Life is not fair. Life is unfair. We are born into an unfair world. Decks are stacked against some people. Decks are stacked for other people. There's always going to be someone who's more pretty than you are, who's more athletic than you are, who's smarter than you are, who's richer than you are, who's born in a better zip code than you're born in, or whatever, or has less pain and suffering. There's always going to be this imbalance, this unfairness of life. That is a part of the human condition. Third reality that we have to deal with is that life is full of suffering. Life is full of pain and suffering. You can't escape it. A lot of pain and suffering we have in our life, as we looked at last week, are caused by our own choices. Our choices have consequences. And so we make bad choices, we have bad and ugly consequences. Some of the pain and suffering in our life is caused by circumstances that are beyond our control. We live in a broken, fallen world with broken, fallen people who do broken, fallen things. The world, the universe, the cosmos is not the way it's supposed to be. So our lives are going to be full of suffering. That's simply how it is. And there was a great novel written years ago, a really small novel written by yet another atheist, Voltaire, called Candide. And Candide is a a satirical little novel that he wrote against the prosperity gospel even before there was a prosperity gospel. If you've not read Candide, it's an absolute beatdown talking about the unfairness, the difficulties, and the sufferings that we encounter in life. So what happens to us when we bump up against the unfairness of life, difficulties in life, and pain and suffering. What do we do a lot of times? Well, a lot of times, at least in our, our culture, the Western world, if we go check out and go to see a therapist, Right? we do. We go see a counselor. We go see a therapist. As you know, if you heard me talk before, if you read any of my books, I'm not against therapy or counseling at all. I wouldn't be here if it were not for counselors, okay? I need help. I get it. But some therapists, it's kind of interesting. Some people go into therapy basically because you're trying to answer the question why. Why is my life difficult? Why are things unfair? Why am I suffering? And in light of that, why am I doing what I'm doing And why am I feeling what I'm feeling like? And you you go into some counselor's office, you sit down. They're going to ask you, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And then they're going to say, tell me a little bit about your past. And they're going to start digging one session after another, digging, digging into your past. Tell me about your family, your mom, your dad, your step parents, whatever happened, your sibling. Tell me about the events. And pretty soon they're going to have a picture for you of what's happened in your past, of the difficulties, unfairness and suffering. And many times, clients or patients leave a therapist's office with a list of people or things to blame, right? right. So my life is, what's going on in my life is not my fault, it's my past fault, it's my parents' fault, it's their fault. And so they leave that place, this should be a place of healing and moving forward, but they leave that place instead stuck and blaming others for their situation. Now, imagine if you would, we could put someone, take someone out of history and put them on the therapist's couch, okay? Okay. So I thought about what if we could go dive into the Bible, the biblical history, and put someone on the couch. And I, who I want to put on the couch is one of my favorite guys in the entire Bible. Definitely my favorite guy in the Old Testament. Because there's some cray cray crazy stuff in people in the Old Testament. And one of the only righteous dudes in the Old Testament was a guy by the name of Joseph. Let's say if we could put Joseph on the therapist's couch. Yeah, can you imagine that? And let's kind of twist the story a little bit. So Joseph sits down on the couch and counselor says, well, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your family. And Joseph goes, well, I grew up in this family and had a lot of brothers. And, you know, I was the youngest and the baby, therefore I was pampered. And I had for a while before Benjamin came along and I had all this stuff and had this cool custom-made code and, you know, had all these dreams and visions. But, man, my brothers were jealous and envious of me. And so my brothers sold me out. You ever heard of human trafficking? I was the first person that did that. And they sold me out in slavery. Now, and I, Before I became a slave, I was thrown in this dark pit. I was just taken of everything. I'm there in this dark pit, and I'm so ticked off. I'm so mad about God, what he's done in my life, my brothers and my dad didn't do anything about it. And I'm just mad as a, as a stack of hornets, man finally some people take me they they take me over the lines they smuggle me to this place called Egypt they put me in this guy's house by the name of Potiphar he's in military intelligence and his wife keeps coming on to me and coming on to me and you know and potiphar is out you know on a business trip and man i just started you know having relationships with her why not man life has ripped me off this is not what i thought was going to happen to me it's unfair i'm just going to go ahead and have a good time with Potiphar's wife. Why not? She likes me. I like her. Love is love, right? Finally, though, I got caught. I don't know to, to tell you my story, you know, Dr. Fuzzy Face, but, you know, you know, I, you know I, I got out, and Potiphar caught me, and he threw me into prison. And I was in prison. I was so mad and angry and I was like the only Hebrew in the whole prison for a while. And finally some other ones got in there. So I started this gang called the Hebrew Hellraisers. And man, I just, I've just been out for a while. And I just can't wait to get revenge on all those people who mess my life up. I'm blaming others. I'm just going to be the victim, Joseph said. Sigmund Freud, great psychoanalyst, said this. He said this. He said, most people really do not want freedom because freedom involves responsibility and most people are frightened of responsibility. But those of you who've read a little bit of the narrative of Joseph, you know that's not what happened to Joseph. Joseph didn't. Blame other people. Joseph didn't play the victim. Instead, even when Joseph was in that dark pit of depression, he said, I know that God is with me. When he was in Potiphar's house and he was a servant there and he was falsely accused, unfairly accused of sexual harassment, he knew that God was with him. Even when he was thrown into a dark prison and forgotten and wearing the orange jumpsuit Joseph knew that God was with him. What did Joseph do? Joseph took responsibility for his life before God. And what we need As a church, as individuals, is to resurrect personal responsibility. You have to take responsibility for your life. I have to take responsibility for my life. Obviously, pain, suffering, injustice are realities. But we can't live in that reality We can't cave in to the temptation. We can't cave in to the bitterness. We can't cave in to the anger. We have to do something with our life. And the first thing that we do in taking responsibility is to realize that I am responsible for my life. No one can live my life for me. I have to live this one and only life that God has given me. I have to deal with these realities of unfairness and suffering and difficulties Throughout my life, it doesn't change. That's what Joseph did. He took responsibility. And after a while, in all of our lives, we have to stop pointing the finger, stop complaining, stop comparing and start living the life that God's given to us. That's why I like the existentialist philosophers so much, both the Christian existentialist and the non-Christian existentialist because they talk about the value of life on this planet and our ability to choose to respond to the moment. So as someone who is seeking to follow God, and many others here are seeking to follow God as well, or some of you are skeptics and trying to get to know God, but we have to realize that, listen, I am responsible for my life. I'm responsible to God because God made me. I'm responsible for the things that I've done in my life that are sinful, that are wrong, that are contrary to his standard of righteousness. I've got to own that. I'm responsible before God. I'm responsible to how I respond to his gospel that New Song was singing about so effectively. This good news that I can be forgiven. This good news that I can have a new life, a second life, a second chance. I'm responsible to my family. We all have a family. Whether we're adopted or not, or biological or step, we have a family and we have a responsibility to our family. We also have a responsibility for our work. And your work may be in school right now. Your work may be in your job and your career. But we have a responsibility to take the gifts and talents that God has given to us, to take the bad and the negative and the pain and suffering and ask that he would redeem that and use that, to honor and to glorify Him. Where do you find purpose and meaning in life? You find purpose and meaning by taking responsibility for your life, for your life before God. Jocko Willink is a uh, former Navy SEAL commander. And Jocko opens one of his books talking about this brutal situation uh, in the Middle East when he was leading a group of Navy SEALs and it went all wrong and and people were firing this way and firing that way. And many soldiers lost their lives in friendly fire. And there was an investigation and Jocko as a commander had to go before these generals and give an account of what happened. And he said, there's so many things I could have blamed, the radio, the language barriers, this or that. But Jocko said, I had to take Ownership for what happened because I was in charge. And so he likes to use the term instead of personal responsibility, extreme ownership. Extreme ownership of your life, extreme ownership of your failings and wrongs, extreme ownership of your gifts and talents that you can develop as you grow. And move forward and respond to God. In a sense, it's like we need to make a pledge. And it's a pledge that you continue to do in your life. It's not just something, a pledge you'll make as a student or a pledge you'll make in your 20s or 30s. You got to make that pledge over and over again, which basically says, listen, I will do what I can where I am, to make a difference with the one and only life God's given me. I will do what I can where I am to make a difference with the one and only life God's given to me. In the middle of unfairness, in the middle of suffering, and the multiplicities of difficulties and challenges that we all face. I'm going to take extreme ownership. I'm going to own my life before God. I'm going to own my gifts before God. I'm going to own my short fallings and shortcomings before him. Because I want my life to count. And one day, all of us are going to give an account for our life. We all must give an account of our life before God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says this It says, For you must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. April 15th, we gotta give an account, don't we? Of what came in to us personally and to our company. In life, we're accountable. You're accountable to your teachers. Teachers, you're accountable to your students. Bosses, you're accountable to your employees or to your board of directors. Employees, you're accountable to your boss. We're all accountable for the work that we're doing. And we're ultimately accountable before God. God expects us to be accountable for our life, for what we've done for him. And you say, what will we be judged about? What will we be held accountable for? We'll be held accountable for, check this out, our response ability. We'll be held accountable for how we responded to God to our life with the abilities that He has given to us. It's our ability to respond, it's our response according to our abilities. Old Joseph, man. Talk about a brutal, unfair, difficult life of suffering. Oh my goodness. Talk about Job, the oldest book in the entire Bible. Suffering, the difficulties, the injustices. But what did Joseph say? If you know the story, he went from the pit to Potiphar's house to prison. Wherever he was, he said, God, I I want you to use me. I'm responsible for my life, for my talents. Wherever I am, I'm going to make a difference with my life, even in prison, even in injustice. And he rose to a point. To the pinnacle of power and influence when he became second in command over all of Egypt. His family came to him, his brothers who betrayed him, who trafficked him, came before him. And what did he say? You meant it for evil, and what happened to me was evil. It was wrong. It was painful. It was sinful. But somehow, some way God meant it for good for the saving of many lives. Joseph went from the pit of despair to the pinnacle of power and influence because he took responsibility for his life before God, even in the dark times, the tough times, the brutal times. Jesus. took ultimate responsibility, didn't he? Jesus took ultimate responsibility for us. He laid down his life. He died on a cross to take the guilt and the wrath for your sin and my sin that we could be forgiven and that we could be given this life that the thief is trying to steal from you and trying to steal from me. He came that we might have life, that we could be forgiven, that we could have this life, this full life, this Zoe life, this God kind of life, this life that says, I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And God gives us that life because of the responsibility, the ultimate responsibility that Christ took for us. Three things that need to be resurrected. The first thing is personal responsibility. Number two, just kidding. Number two and three we'll get at next week. All the guys are panicking. It's football season. I know that. (laughs) Quick story, quick story. Many years ago, there was a guy who was a freshman at the University of Alabama. His name was Walter. He, too, was an atheist. And Walter was there late in his dorm one night and he was talking to his roommate and he said, hey, do you believe in God? And his roommate said, well, yeah, yeah, I do. And Walter said, I don't. He said, but I live my life as if there is no God, but you live your life As if there is no God either. And Walter's roommate was convicted to the core because he realized he wasn't living his life before God. He realized he wasn't taking responsibility for the gifts and talents that God had given him. So he walked outside one night on that campus in Alabama. And he knelt down before a stump. (laughs) And he said, God, I give you my life. Use me. All my talents, my gifts, my thoughts, I want to be used by you. I want to take responsibility for my life before you. And at that moment, Walter's roommate, life was changed. Sometimes it takes an atheist Wake us up. You say, How do you know that story? Well, that roommate, his name was Eddie, also known as Ed Young, my dad.